So like I said, my name is Blake. I am uh, one of the pastors here at The Refuge, and it's uh, my joy to continue our study in Acts to this morning. So uh, last week, Pastor PJ, our students, our students pastor and one of our elders, uh, took a little bit of a uh, one-off as we opened scripture into Hebrews and gave uh, a sermon specifically for our outgoing seniors, our graduating seniors. Now, but if you listen to that sermon, if you're here, if you've listened to it online, that sermon wasn't only for the graduating seniors, was it? It was for all of us. It was something for all of us that we can read as we're looking through Hebrews. That charge that he gave to them was also, was also for all of us. And, and then two weeks ago, Pastor Scott finished up chapter 3 of Acts. And this is where we're going to pick up this morning. So if you can, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to the chapter 4 of Acts. And uh, if you do not have a physical Bible with you, raise your hand high. I want to put a physical Bible in your hands. I'm a big fan of, of physical Bibles because if you're anything like me, that notification will inevitably pop up on my phone or my iPad, and I will find myself on Facebook or Words with Friends or something, okay? So, so don't be like me. Just hold strong. Let's get some paper in your hands so we can uh, open Scripture together. Um, so if you're able to, what we're going to do, we're going to be uh, picking up in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of Acts. And what I'm going to do, we're going to read this together. And I know I just asked you guys to sit down, but if you can, I want you to stand up with me as we read the, uh, the Word of God together. Just in honor of the written Word of God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming a Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man had been healed? Let it be known to all of you and all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you and builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the very word of God given graciously for us. You may be seated. So we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. And... Um, it's yet another fiery scene that we get to, that we get to open together. And um, so although Pastor Scott finished chapter 3 last uh, two weeks ago, this scene that we're going to be focusing on today is actually a continuation of that same thing. So the scene didn't end in chapter 3, and now it's not a brand new place in, or anything from chapter 4. That scene is continuing here in chapter 4. So, so what I want to do is I want to give us a quick recap of what's going on in chapter 3 so we know what the runway looks like as we get into the air here in chapter 4. So Peter and John, at the beginning of chapter 3, were on their way to the temple, with a very busy temple, and uh, they came across a man who is lame from birth. And um, the man looks up at Peter and uh, asks him for alms or food or money or something to, to give to him. And Peter gazes at the man with compassion and says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Then what happens? 
Didn't work, right? No, of course it worked. He, in the name of Christ, he, he helped him up, and his scripture says that his feet and ankles were strengthened. And then from there, he was able to, to jump. He says he was leaping, and he was walking, and he actually walked into the temple praising God with Peter and John. And then so the people looking around in the temple, they noticed this. And they're like, isn't this the guy that's always at the front of the, the gate called Beautiful that, that's always there begging every day? I thought he couldn't walk. So obviously they were amazed by what was going on. And so, so Peter, looking around, sees the amazement of the crowd. And he, um, and he looks at them and says, he says that it, this isn't because of your, your piety that he's doing this. The reason he's able to walk is because of Jesus. By the way, the same Jesus that you killed and crucified. And then Peter and John, they connect the dots for the crowd, saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. And just as their own prophets foretold that they would. In fact, they themselves will be able to share in Christ's resurrection if they repent and believe in the name of Jesus. And this is where we find ourselves here in chapter 4, because right as they're saying this, they're interrupted. And as they were speaking to the people and the priests of the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So um, have you ever watched a show on, on like maybe it's a show like on one of those weird channels you never get to or anything, and it's one of those shows you don't understand it because it's another language, and they're just doing some weird stuff. Have you, has that ever happened to y'all? You have no idea what's going on. Like there's slime for some reason. There's like there's like a guy in a panda costume. There's another guy like doing something else. Something you have no idea what's going on. You're just bewildered, right? And you realize they're not the weird ones. I'm the weird one because I just don't understand what's going on, right? I don't understand the language. I don't understand the culture. I just don't understand. So I'm just gonna have to believe. If, you, if you're in that, in that room, you know what's going on, I am not one of them, and that's okay, right? So the reason I say that is because this passage that we see in chapter 4 is a little bit like that. Not that it's crazy with slime and panda costumes or anything like that, but it's a little bit weird because we here in 2023 in Lakeland, Tennessee, we are separated by thousands of miles from where this was written. We're separated by thousands of years from when that was written. We're separated by language. We're separated by culture. There's a lot of things that separate us from the original writing and the original uh, hearing of this letter being written. And so if you're just reading it at face value, there's a lot that could be missed as we, um, as we read this together. And there's so much good little nuggets throughout this uh, that I want to make sure you don't miss. So here's the game plan for what we've got to do this morning, okay? And here's where I need you. I know it's a holiday weekend. I know that we're, you were busy grilling yesterday. You're going to be busy grilling today and tomorrow. But I need you to roll up your proverbial sleeves and get to work with me. Can you all do that? I need you to do some work with me, okay? Don't tune me out. This is not nap time for some of you, like usual. But uh, this, is, uh, this is time where we need to get to work together because I promise is going to be worth the work because there is so much good little stuff in this passage that I want to make sure that we don't miss. And so as we get that context together, as we understand the context of what we're doing, then the application actually becomes very, very easy for us. Uh, as we talk about how do, we, how do we connect that thing that happened way back then, way over there, in cultures I don't understand, how can that apply to me? I promise it's going to make sense. But as we do that, we're going we're gonna, to um, enjoy the ride along the way, okay? So let's get back to our text. So, so as they were speaking, the first thing we got to figure out is who were these guys that were, um, that were interrupting them? So, so what we see is that there was three main, three main people that we see here, right? So the first one we see is we see the priests. The priests, and when you hear priests, don't think of necessarily pastors in a church. Think more like the workers that do the day-to-day things throughout the temple. That they kind of, you know, whatever has to be done to make sure the operations of the temple are going on. But then what we see is the captain of the temple coming on. So uh, other places that he's called the captain of the temple guard or capital of the temple police. Um, he's the guy that 
crack some skulls if they need to be cracked, right? He's the guy that, that takes care of issues, that, that goes and he's the, one of the final authorities. He's actually second in command to the high priest of the temple. So this guy, you better do what he says. And then lastly, what we see is the Sadducees coming up. Now, unlike the priests and unlike the captain of the temple, the Sadducees were not an official office of the temple. Instead, they're actually a political group um, that, uh, that you might have seen throughout all of these scriptures. Now, this probably isn't the first time you've heard the word Sadducees, right? We've seen all throughout scripture, and actually, um, if you're thinking about, uh, especially in the Gospels, you often hear these guys paired with another political group, right? Who's that? The Sadducees and the the Pharisees, right? So if you're looking at the, uh, in the Gospels, you hear a lot more about the Pharisees. Those are the main opponents of Jesus' ministry, the, the Pharisees. So now as we get into Acts and some of the epistles, we're going to start hearing a lot more about the Sadducees, uh, which is what we see here in, uh, in chapter 4. Now there's a lot of differences between these guys. I'm not going to exhaustively go through all of them for all of our sake. Um, but the main thing we need to understand between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that unlike the Pharisees, I was surprised by this too, the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. In fact, they believed in very little spiritual things at all, which is weird to think about, right? These are a political group of Jewish leaders, and they don't believe in the afterlife? They don't believe in anything um, really kind of spiritual at all? So what's the point then? So you have to re remember that, unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees, since they didn't believe in any of that, their main goal was maintaining the power that they had in that, in that area, the power they had amongst the Jewish people. So, um, so which the reason they were so concerned with power, that probably helps answer the question of why they use this specific phrase. So it, it says that they were, in verse 2, they were greatly annoyed. Why were they greatly annoyed? What does it say? Yeah. Because they were preaching the gospel, is that what it says? Because they were preaching the virgin birth? No, what does it say? It's because they were preaching and teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So now, that might seem like a very weird, specific thing for them to be upset about, right? But remember, they don't believe in anything spiritual at all, especially resurrections. So you can imagine that if a bunch of people started believing that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, what does that mean about them? It means they're wrong, which they were, by the way. But uh, it means they're wrong. That means they're probably going to lose a lot of their political and power and credibility. So this is one of the main reasons they were opposing this so hard. So... What did they do about it? And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So what did they do? They threw them in temple jail. Okay, that's what they did. Now, we just got to stop here, and we have to acknowledge how bananas it is that this is even a thing, okay? Temple jail. He didn't go to county jail. He didn't go to the sheriff's jail. He didn't go to any governmental jail at all. He went to a jail specifically and only done within the temple. All the authority is religious, not necessarily political or, or governmental. It'd be like, the equivalent would be like if one of y'all right now were annoying me up here, and I called two of my deacons, say, go get them, okay, and go lock them in an office. That's the equivalent. Actually, I kind of like that idea. Um, okay, next week, we're going to implement that, so y'all better shape up, okay? So, but that's what, that's what we're talking about right here. That's kind of the equivalent of what's going on. So, they locked them up in temple jail, and it says they had to hold them till the next day. The reason being is because they wanted to hold a trial for them, but it was already late in the day. It was too late to start a new trial, so they had to hold them till the next day so they could start fresh. But then something happens that Luke includes, which is incredible. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to five thousands. 
So Luke interrupts this interruption as he's telling the story, and it's almost like he's saying, nice try, Sadducees. Didn't work. Because what happened? They're trying to squash this, but what happened? A dozen people got saved, right? Several hundred got saved, right? No, 5,000 got saved. That is insane. That is incredible. 5,000 people, because of the things that they were hearing, Peter and John's preaching, and the things that they saw by a lame man being healed, 5,000 were saved that day. Nice try, Pharisees. Nice try, Sadducees. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter. So I, I just love this. I love that, this picture, and this is one of my favorite things as you look at the, the history of Christianity. There's been no shortage of people throughout the ages that have opposed Christianity. But for whatever reason, God has decided that it's almost in those specific situations that he, God just loves to show that he is going to do powerful things through the week, that through those opposition is usually where you see the most growth of the Christian faith. It usually does the exact opposite of what the opposition expects. The more and more it's fought against, the more and more it seems to spread like this unstoppable tidal wave of loving truth. How cool is that? We see it over and over throughout church history. And what we're reading here in, in chapter 4 is just another example of that. 5,000 men believe. That is incredible. So then we keep going. Uh, uh, the writer Luke gets back to the story. On the next day, there were rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So the temple higher-ups arrested them yesterday. But now, as the, as the trial is reconvening on a fresh day, we have the highest of the highest authority gathering together. Uh, and now, even though Luke doesn't use this name specifically, what he's describing is a group of people called the Sanhedrin. And when you think of the Sanhedrin, what I want you to think of is like our equivalent of the Supreme Court. Like they are the highest authority, but it's not only nine guys, it's 70, usually around 70 people in the Sanhedrin who is the highest authority within the Jewish life and uh, that, are, that are being called together. And it was mostly made up of Sadducees, a little bit of Pharisees, uh, but you can see that it's, a, it's a, the supreme court of Jewish life being gathered together to try these people. So they're bringing out the big guns to squash whatever this is they think is going on. In fact, what you need to understand, too, is that this is actually the same group of people who tried another trial a few years before. What trial do you think that was? Jesus' trial. It's the same guys. The same guys who are trying Peter and John now are likely most of the same people that tried Jesus in that sham trial they put for him. And what did they end up doing with Jesus? They crucified him. They crucified him. So the stage is set for this trial. The Sanhedrin, or 70 of the most influential Jewish leaders sitting around Peter and John, the, the phrase actually, they usually literally sat around you. So imagine yourself sitting, standing with people just all around you, grilling you, right? And this was, not, this was a, a formal gathering for that, very, very intimidating, with, with serious and probably even deadly consequences. Then they asked their first question of the disciples. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Can you imagine how scary this would be? Knowing these are the same guys that crucified my Savior, and that what they just asked me was to give the same answer that Jesus did to send him to the cross. Well, how would you answer? Probably think about it, right? This is exactly what they're doing to them. And then Peter did have an answer, though. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to stop right there. Now, Peter does have an answer, but before we get into what Peter said, I want to make sure that we really don't miss how 
it is he came up with that answer. So how did Peter come up with the answer that he gave? The Holy Spirit. In short, he didn't, right? The Holy Spirit, he was filling him up. The Holy Spirit spoke through Peter to help him answer. Now for us reading this today, is this, uh, is this a surprise to anybody? Shouldn't be. Reason being is because this is actually something that Jesus said he would do for us. Um, if you can, keep a finger here in, in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4. I want you to flip over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. And we're going to see what Jesus had to say to his disciples when they find themselves in situations such as these. Luke chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 11. Jesus said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or by what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You think Peter and John remembered that Jesus told them that as well? I bet they did. I bet when they're standing in front of these 70 people, they're grilling them, asking them, what name is it that you did all this work? I bet they knew that, uh, remembered that Jesus was, told them that the Holy Spirit was going to convene and, and help him in this answer. And what we see in chapter 4, that's exactly what happened. When we look at Scripture, do we ever have any reason to believe that God isn't going to do exactly what he says he's going to do? Do we ever have any reason to believe that God isn't exactly who he says he is? We don't. God answers his, what he, God does what he says he's going to do every single time. God always, always, always keeps his promises. So now that we know how Peter came up with this answer, what is it that he said? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's a bold mood, Cotton. That's a bold move, okay? Imagine, he knows exactly the answer they don't want to hear. He knows the implications of what's going to happen. If he answers it, he does it anyway, being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit interceding for him in that time of trouble. Do you see the in-your-face irony of this? In the middle of the very group that sent Jesus to the cross, Peter here is preaching the very thing that landed him in this trial to begin with, the resurrection. That's what got him arrested, but he's telling it to his accusers as well. He is not backing up at all. Not only that, we see the same accusatory tone that he used back in chapter 3 as, as Scott was preaching. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. So not only am I talking about Jesus, you need to remember, you guys are the ones that killed him. But guess what? Even though, uh, who, even though you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. These guys don't believe in the supernatural, especially the resurrection of the dead. So Peter here is giving them this one-two punch, right? He's saying not only was Jesus actually raised from the dead, but it was God himself who did it. 
It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't stop Jesus from being who he is, alive today at the right hand of the Father. So in other words, they asked him, by what name did you heal this man? Peter answers a resounding, unapologetic, the name you're looking for is Jesus. What a bold answer to the intimidating 70-person strong Sanhedrin surrounding them. But Peter's not done. He continues the sermon. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So Peter's now fighting fire with fire, and he sets scripture against them, quoting Psalm 118.22. Remember, these are the guys, they probably had this memorized, but he's using it, showing them that you're missing the point. What does what Psalm 118 say? Let me read it for you. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through him and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and gave me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. For those of you who grew up in church, you're singing that song in your head right now, aren't you? Yep. But did you know that before that, what he was saying is that people were going to reject Jesus? I'm not going to sing, Scott. Stop, stop, stop staring at me. So, so what, what is he saying? The Sanhedrin knew these scriptures. So yet another bold move from Peter. He's really telling them three different things by bringing up and really kind of pushing this, uh, this scripture in their face. Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets promised. They didn't believe that. In fact, they didn't believe there was going to be a Messiah really at all unless it was going to be some political figure coming up because they don't believe in any of this stuff, right? But not only is he the Messiah, he's also God. Jesus is God, part of the Godhead. And then thirdly, even though they've rejected Jesus, the world is built for him, through him, and by him, like we read in Colossians chapter 1. So how do we know that Peter is implying this? Well, this is the very definition of what a cornerstone is. So a cornerstone in building plans is the first stone that's laid down in order to start the foundation of a building. And then what they do is based on that one stone uh, for the whole building, what happens is they use all of the other stones in reference to that one stone to make sure that it's square to the building. So we know that every other stone in this wall or in this building is in its precise place because we know that the cornerstone is in its place. And I can judge where this stone is in relation to the cornerstone. So everything is referenced back to the cornerstone. And Jesus is the cornerstone, is what Peter's saying. The very reference point for the foundations of not only our faith, but the universe itself. And then finally, they can reject Jesus all they want, but that doesn't stop the truth of who Jesus is. Then we get to the climax of Peter's sermon to the Sanhedrin, and it's all been building up to this moment, to this statement, and he's not mincing any words. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm going to read it again. And there is salvation in who? No one else. For there is what other name? No other name under heaven given amongst men which, by which we must be saved. And what is that name? Jesus. What is that name? Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved, is what he is saying. 
There's no way to, to, to do tap dancing gymnastics to get around what he means here. He is being as plain as possible. Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. Now, so without getting too in the weeds of, of the Greek and the original languages, what I want you to know that right here, Peter is actually using a play on words. In the original Greek, the word for healed and the word for salvation sound extremely similar. In fact, sometimes they're even interchangeable. So essentially, what Peter is saying, imagine him like using, you hear these same words popping up over and over, um, but essentially what he's saying is, you ask, me, you ask by what name the person was healed and is able to walk, I'm telling you that not only were his ankles healed, but his whole being is healed through salvation in Jesus. That's kind of the, the gist of, of what it would have sounded like to these guys. But Peter isn't talking about just the healed man anymore, is he? Notice he changes this specific word. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's including himself. He's including everyone listening in that group that they're not off the hook. They can believe whatever they want or they cannot believe whatever they want, but they included in that word we and everyone in this room as well there's only one name by which we must be saved and that's Jesus Christ he was saying that to himself he was saying that to the Sanhedrin he was saying that to the priests and everyone in that room and he's saying it to us today as well so you might be asking cool story bro but what does this have to do with me okay Thanks for the, you know, the going through all this stuff, but I don't see what a sermon said 2,000 years ago has to do with me today in 2023 with my life here in Memphis. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, what I want you to do, now that we've brushed up on some of the, the cultural nuances that we saw going on in this room, I want to, uh, there's three questions that I want to put before you. But these aren't questions that I want to ask you. These are questions that I want you to ask of yourself, Okay. So the first question is, uh, is, is interesting as we place ourselves maybe in the shoes of, of Peter and John. First question is this. Would they arrest you? Would you be arrested? I mean, you don't live thousands of years ago in this place, thousands of miles away. But let's say, okay, let's just say you were, found yourself living in the heart of another country that is majority not Christian. And let's say they have a religious police force roaming around looking for people rocking the boat. It's not a hypothetical, by the way. That's actually out there. So the question is this. Would the way you live your life stand out? Would you be on this religious police's radar? Would your face be on one of those wanted posters in their headquarters wall because you're clearly a Christian based on the way you live your life? Or would they have no reason to even suspect you because there's nothing about your life that looks any different from the life around you? That might sound silly, so let me, let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Looking at your life in Memphis today, the way you lead your family, the way you steward your time and money, the way you interact with others, whether in person or online even, the way you care for the less fortunate, would anyone be able to say of you, they're clearly a Christian? Why or why not? 
please ask yourself this question. If I were to have a camera crew follow you around 24-7 for a week, what about your life would scream, I'm a Christian? Maybe that's a good question for you to ask of your spouse or of someone who's very close to you, but this is something that you have to ask yourself. Because remember, what did Jesus say about a tree? You'll know a tree by its what? By its fruit. Does your life show the fruit of Christianity? For the next question, I'm going to ask you the same question that the Sanhedrin asked of Peter. By what name are you doing this? Peter answered, there is, no, there is salvation for no one else. I'm sorry, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you have to ask, what name are you looking to for salvation? The easy Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? That's the name we're probably all going to say out loud. But if you look inward, what are the things that you're actually placing your hopes on? What, let me ask it this way. What, what is the thing in the back of your mind that if that were to be threatened, it would give you the most anxiety? Per, perhaps the, the name of your ultimate hope is financial security, Maybe like emergency funds or 401ks or, or investments. By the way, it is shaky right now. So are you feeling ever more anxious because you see maybe your, your financial stability foundation is shaking? Maybe the name of your ultimate hope is a successful career or being a good parent or having good kids. Or maybe it's physical safety. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your appearance, the way you look to others. There's lots of names by which we are placing our hopes on operationally, even though we might not say it out loud. Again, if we look at the, the film from that 24-7 camera crew, we're going to be able to see what is actually important to you. Now, don't get me wrong. None of these things are bad on their own, are they? They're, none of them are bad on their own. But when we look to these things to bring us comfort and security more than Christ, it becomes idolatry. So what's the thing, as soon as it becomes a little shaky, you start to get nervous? If you're not sure, another way to expose what this might be is, is maybe you can look at your calendar. Where do you spend the most of your time? That can be a good diagnostic to, to maybe expose where the, what is really most important to you. Or look at your bank account. What are the things that you spend the most money on? That can also be an indicator of where your treasure truly lies. Looking introspectively at these two questions, it might stir up some guilt. I hope it does for all of us. All of us, there are always things in our lives that we are placing above Christ. And I, it's, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit allowing us to, to be convicted of those things so that we can continually submit those things to him. And he's always sufficient to take those under, his, under the uh, beauty of the, Christ, is he, of the cross, is he not? But just as Peter had a tendency to do at the end of his sermons through Acts, I'll ask the third question, just like Peter usually asks. Of what do you need to repent? Just like with the Sanhedrin, it's never too late to repent. Maybe you realize that your life doesn't reflect that you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you realize that you're placing your hope on some other name than Jesus. It might not necessarily be an either-or thing either. You love Jesus, but the idea of not having whatever this is gives you more anxiety than not having Jesus. 
no matter what it is you may feel convicted of, as long as you have air in your lungs, it's never too late to repent. Perhaps your repentance might sound something like this. Forgive me, Father, for holding back, not fully submitting my life to you. Or it might sound like, forgive me, God, for believing the lie that the life you offer will somehow be less than what I can build on my own. Or, forgive me, Lord, for just paying lip service to being a Christian while my life looks no different than the world around me. Or, forgive me, Jesus, for placing my finances or my goals or my family or my health, whatever it is, in a position of more importance in my life than you. Or forgive me, Christ, for pursuing my career ambitions more fiercely than I pursue you. For some in this room, maybe the reason you wouldn't be arrested as a Christian is because of the simple fact you're not a Christian. You're not on anyone's radar because you have no reason to be. Maybe like the Sanhedrin, you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's just some moralistic story. And maybe the reason Jesus isn't the highest name in your mind is because to you, he's just a character in the book of no real consequence to anyone in the real world. Or perhaps what you do believe is that going to church every once in a while and praying every once in a while and giving some money every once in a while will cover you. I have to tell you that those are other names by which we cannot be saved. No amount of church going or giving or good deeds can save you. The only name by which you can be saved is what? Jesus. If that's you, then your repentance needs to sound something like this. God, I see that I am a sinner. And I see that there is nothing I can do to pay for the debt of my sin. I acknowledge that Jesus is the only name by which I can be saved. I believe that he died on the cross, paying for my sin, and that God raised him from the dead. Whatever it is, your repentance will be heard by your Father in heaven who loves you. Come to Jesus. Find that the life that he offers is truly a life abundant. He is worthy to be trusted with your life. You don't have to hold anything back. I say this not to bring more condemnation on you because what does Romans tell us about condemnation? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. So whether you know Jesus, whether you don't, I pray that you are able to really examine your life with these questions. Would you be arrested? Does your life look anything like a Christian? By what name are you chasing for salvation? And what do you need to repent of? I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to continue together in communion and what next steps might look like for you.